Acts chapter 28 is where we're going to start, bring you up to speed. Last week, at the end of chapter 27, Paul and the whole crew are shipwrecked. And uh, at the last, they're at the last minute, they're dropping anchors, they're throwing everything off the boat. And, uh, and Paul says, hey guys, anybody who can swim, swim for it. And if you can't, grab a piece of wood. And ultimately, God is going to keep us all alive. And so we ended with the, with the crew washed ashore there at Malta. And, uh, and they had met an indigenous people group there at Malta. They welcomed them in. Um, and, uh, and they built a fire for them to warm them because remember, it's wintertime. And so they fed them, and they have uh, warmed them. And then Paul, at the beginning of chapter 28, is out gathering some firewood, and the heat from the fire um, causes a snake to come out of hibernation. Didn't really, I guess they gathered up a snake with the firewood, and it's sitting by the fire, and it comes, and he's, he's reaching to grab firewood. The snake bites him, uh, attaches to his hand. He shakes it loose. All the locals are freaked out because this is known to be a very dangerous snake, and then Paul doesn't die. So now they're like, whoa, what is going on here? So Paul shares the gospel there with them. They stay there with them for several months until winter passes. And then they board a ship headed for their final destination in Rome. And this is the beginning of chapter 28. Now where we're going to pick up the story is Paul has been in Rome now for three days. He's, in, he's under house arrest, which means he's not in prison. He's able to like rent a local cottage there, a house. And the Romans put a guard with him. Uh, and people can come and go from his house as they please. So essentially he's under house arrest because, because keep in mind... From the Romans' perspective, he hasn't done anything wrong. So they're not worried about him flying the country or uh, him starting some uh, rebellion. Uh, they simply are holding him under house arrest. And this is where we'll pick up the story in Acts 28, verse 17. We have a lot of ground to cover today, okay? A lot of ground to cover. Uh, we're going to start here, though, in Acts 28. So uh, here we go in verse 17. After three days, he, being Paul, called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case." But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. You should hang on to that statement as we continue to read. And they said to him, well, we have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everyone or everywhere it is spoken against. Okay, so let's set the scene here. Paul is speaking to the Jews, which this is the nation of Israel, the Hebrews. And Paul gathers this uh, group of Jews to himself. Now, at this point, they haven't heard about this, uh, these accusations against Paul and the death threats. That's what they're saying there. Now, keep in mind, here's why. It's, it's early spring. Um, you really had to be out of your mind to travel from Jerusalem to Rome at this time of year. Okay, they're coming. Okay, the angry mom is co- mob is coming. They just haven't made it yet. All that has made it to Rome are, is this, this hearsay or these rumors about this fast-moving sect from Judaism called Christianity. 
And so they're saying to Paul, Paul, listen, we haven't heard a whole lot about you or accusations against you, but we've heard a lot about this movement of God called the way or Christianity, and we want to hear about it. And so for Paul, I mean, that's, the stage is set. Oh, you want to hear about it? But let me take a step further back to fully understand what's going on here. So Paul calls the Jews to himself, okay? These are his own people, his own ethnicity, his own nationality. These are the people of God from the Old Testament, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And so Paul calls them to himself. Now, this hasn't gone very well for Paul in other locations. This normally ends with him being stoned or beaten and a a death sentence, right? So what Paul's doing here is a very, very dangerous thing as he, as he begins to call the Jewish brethren to himself to speak to them. But I love Paul's perspective here. So Paul doesn't ultimately blame his imprisonment and captivity on the Jews. He explains to them what happened, right? He's not, he's not trying to proclaim his innocence. He says, it is for the hope of Israel that I wear these chains. Now that's an interesting thing. Right? Because we've talked about it a lot. If I'm in Paul's shoes, I'm going to blame it. I'm going to blame shift, right? It's because those Jews are so arrogant and prideful in Jerusalem. They won't listen to what I have to say. I hope you'll listen to what I have to say. It's because of them I'm wearing these chains. I didn't do anything wrong. But what does he say? He says, no, guys, as he speaks to his fellow brothers, his fellow Israelites, he says what? It's because of our hope that I am wearing these chains. And so the Jews gather around and they want to hear what he has to say. Verse 23. So when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now, what we're going to do today is so much bigger than what's happening to Paul. And I think Paul wants us to see it as such. Paul wants us to see that this is not really a story about him or about what's happening in prison. Paul wants us to think about the big picture of what God is doing. And so he says it's because of the hope of Israel. So what does that mean to this crowd? Let's think about your Bible for just a minute. I hope this is helpful to you. If you start on the, on the left side of your Bible and move to the right, that first big section is called the Old Testament, okay? This is the Jewish Bible, okay? The folks that Paul is talking to here, this was their Bible, the Scriptures, okay? Now, the Scriptures were divided into three big sections. The Law, which was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Then you had the Prophets, and then you had the Writings, which were the poetic works like Songs of Solomon and Proverbs and then the other scrolls that went along with it. And so what Paul is doing here is he's going to the scriptures, to the Old Testament, and he's, he's reasoning with them, and he's teaching them from morning until evening about what? What's he teaching about? Is he teaching about Noah and his ark? Is he teaching about Jonah and the well? Is he teaching about the walls of Jericho? What's he teaching about? What well, says what he's teaching about? It says that from morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Now, there was a reason why Paul was taking this strategy here, because ultimately it's what Jesus told his disciples to do. 
Okay? Jesus wanted to be known not just for the miracles that were coming from him in real time right now, but Jesus wanted to be seen in light of the historical redemption story of everything God has written. Right? Jesus wasn't just the new kid on the block, but this story about Jesus was part of the whole story of the Bible. Matter of fact, in Luke 24, this is the end of the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus resurrected. He's in the upper room with his disciples, and and I want to read a few verses about what he says to them. In verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then... He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And what Jesus is doing is the same thing Paul is doing here from the Old Testament. From the law, the prophets, the songs or the writings, Jesus is showing his disciples, Listen guys, this is all about me. I'm actually the main character of the Old Testament. And what's interesting, if you go into the book of Acts and look at the sermons preached, uh, they do the exact same thing, whether it's Peter or whether it's Paul or it's Stephen. They want everybody listening to see what? That Jesus is the Christ. He's the hope of Israel. He's all that God ever promised to us. What Paul is doing is saying, this moment right here in prison is so much bigger than what's happening to me. Now, I want to ask a couple of questions then. So what was it that God promised in the law, right? First five books of your Bible, the Torah. What was it that God promised to his people? Now, you're going to begin to find hints of this promise early on in the book of Genesis. And it begins to get real specific once you get to the 12th chapter in Genesis. This is the first book in your Bible. God breaks the silence with Abraham. He enters into a dialogue with Abraham there in chapter 12 and reveals what the promise is about. Now, you have to keep in mind, when God speaks to Abraham, he's speaking to a man who's married to a a wife who is barren, can't have children, and they're beginning to get up in age. And God speaks to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, and he says this. God makes a promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, so something about this promise God was making meant that Abraham would end up somewhere else, okay? And the assumption would be that would be a better somewhere else because God's going to use the word blessing here, okay? So Abraham, get packed up and get ready to go. Where are we going, God? I'm going to show you. But, but, but where are we going? What, what, what area are we going to? I'm going to show you, Abraham. I'm asking you, pack your stuff and get ready and follow me. I'm going to take you to a different land. Then God goes on to promise, or to extend this promise, and he says this. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a really big promise to a a couple that's borderline elderly, and she's barren, okay? Abraham, you're going to have some kids, and and your family is going to get so big that they're going to become a nation, 
But that's not it. That's not the end of the promise. Through your descendants, through your family, I'm going to bless all other nations. And that Hebrew word there could translate ethnicities or, or tribes or tongues or languages. So Abraham, what I'm about to do through you is so much bigger than you. Now get ready to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And so this is where the promise of God begins to become very specific. So the hope of Israel is this. For hundreds of years after that, the family that came from Abraham and Sarah, they clung to this promise. God will make us into a great nation. God will bless the nations through us. Every ethnicity and family on earth will be blessed through us. And they clung. This was the hope of Israel. And it was a promise God made in the law. What did God promise then in the prophets? We'll take a snapshot of a moment. This is the story of King David found in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, King David is now the reigning king over the nation of Israel. This family of Abraham has become a great nation. And through a prophet, God speaks to David. Listen to what God speaks to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. That's just a nice way of saying, David, when you die. Okay? David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. Well, that's encouraging to hear if you're a king. That You would expect that, right? You build this empire and you become this great leader. Then you hand it off to your oldest son. And then he would take the baton and do the same and continue passing this on. So I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the last word? Forever. This is a little different. Right? For a king, there was this pride in your firstborn son that you would pass on the monarchy to your firstborn son and he would reign as you reign and he would lead the nation as you led the nation and, and then he would pass away and die and then pass it on to your grandson and so on and so forth. But the promise that God is making is different from that, isn't it? God says that David, through your lineage, through your DNA, I will, rise, I will raise up a king of Israel who will reign forever. And so this became the hope of Israel. So when Paul says to the Jews, it's because of the hope of Israel, I'm in chains, that's what they thought of. You mean the promise that God made to Abraham that he would take him to a new land and he would build this great nation and that that one day, like he said to David, that God would send a king to reign on the throne of Israel forever? That promise? And so what Paul did is he opened up the law and the prophets and he began to show them from the scriptures two things. What were the two things? Back to Acts 28, here it is. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. Let me back up. Testifying to the kingdom of God, there's the first thing, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And so somehow, Paul is connecting the hope of Israel to the kingdom of God to Jesus. Now, one of my um, hopes for us as a church, I've shared this before, is that we would become more and more biblically literate, okay? Not because I want to see you become smarter, but because as we begin to understand the scriptures more deeply, this allows this transforming work of God to take place in our lives, okay? And I would say this today, the connection between the hope of Israel, the kingdom of God, and who Jesus is, is one of the most significant threads of the Bible, 
Like, it's the thing that we need to get if we're going to understand one sentence. I don't know how many of you have, like, opened the Bible and tried to read it, and you're like, I'm just lost. I got no idea where I'm at or what this is about or what this person has to do with anything. It doesn't relate to my life. Until we get this thread that Paul is stitching together here, we won't get it. So what is the connection of the Old Testament, the hope of Israel, to the kingdom of God, and what does Jesus have to do with any of it? Now, after your Old Testament, you get to the New Testament. Does anybody know the first book in the New Testament? Somebody say it out loud. Matthew, first book in the New Testament. This is a really significant part of your Bible. The first verse in the first chapter of the New Testament says something profound to us. I'm going to read it to you. Matthew opens up his gospel story about Jesus by saying this. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, Christ, the son of who? David, the son of Abraham. Then he goes into that really exciting part of the story where it's just genealogy. So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so. Why is that in the Bible? Does it feel relevant to my life? Well, here's why. Matthew wanted to get something. He wanted you to see that Jesus is a blood descendant of David. He's the one that God was talking about in 2 Samuel 7, that God would send a king from your lineage, David, someone who would sit on your throne forever. That's Jesus. And not only that, he's not only the son of David, he's the son of who? Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, that everything God promised in Genesis 12, 1 and 3, was about Jesus. And so what, see what Matthew's doing? He's taking everything you're going to read in your New Testament that comes after that with everything that was promised in the Old Testament. And he's stitching it together for us. Now, I want to look at a couple of things with you that come from the teaching of Jesus, just from the Gospel of Matthew, just some small snapshots. So when Jesus starts his public ministry, do you know what his primary message was? Matthew captures this in chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is Jesus saying? Turn back to God, because his kingdom has arrived. Now think about that. God's kingdom has arrived. A few chapters later in Matthew 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you, I love this verse, by the way, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So for the Israelites, the Jews, they looked forward to a day when they would all get the feast with Abraham at a table. It was part of what they understood God was promising to them. What Jesus is saying, oh yeah, you know that thing you're so excited about, about eternity, about sitting in heaven at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Guess what? There's going to be more than just you there. People are going to come from the east and from the west. They're going to have different cultural backgrounds, different skin colors, different languages, right? And this is why in the New Testament, Jesus sends the disciples where? To start where? In Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then where? Ends of the earth. And Paul comes on the scene, and Jesus has told Paul, first go to the Jews, and then go where? Gentiles. Because why? Because God's kingdom is bigger than just the nation of Israel. It's not about being born a Hebrew or being born Jewish. It's about God saying, listen, I'm going to bless all nations, but I'm just going to do it through you. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He's a son of David. He's a son of Abraham. He's a Jew, right, through his lineage, through Mary, And he's also the one who was promised through the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 11, this is 
This is a beautiful promise about eternity. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, when you read that in Revelation, that's like worship. That's God's people excited. So loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now think about that. What does that mean? The kingdom of this world has become his kingdom. The church is a very distinct place in the timeline of redemptive history. And I think that as Christians, we can overemphasize the role of the church, but I also think that we can completely underemphasize the role of of the church. What Revelation is saying to us is this, the church is God's kingdom on the ground. Jesus came to usher God's kingdom here on earth. That's why he said what? Repent. Turn back to God because his kingdom's here. Right? That's why he's saying, like, guys, listen, get ready. Many people are going to come from the east and the west, and they're going to join us at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's why in Revelation we read that there will be a day where the, God's kingdom here on earth will become God's eternal kingdom. Now we started this, um, this journey through the book of Acts with the subtitle, The Unstoppable Church. And we've stopped along the way many times to reiterate what we mean by that. And we started this sermon series actually not in the book of Acts. We started it in Matthew chapter 16, was something Jesus promised about the church before the church ever launched. Let's revisit that together. Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you're right, and you didn't figure that out on your own. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this beautiful gospel truth, I will build my church. Now, does that sound like Jesus is leaving room for this to be a possibility? So Jesus, from his perspective, he's going to do this, right? I will build my church. And then he goes on to say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Despite the fact that, that hell itself will try to bring this movement to a stopping point that they, the gates of hell won't prevail, that this church will be unstoppable. And then look at what he says. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, keys? Real got keys? And how do we get copies of those keys? Who has the key? Where are the keys at? And he says, whatever you, the church, Bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what you, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the church will be established on this theological truth that Jesus is the Son of God, right? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God, and nothing can stop his church. And not only that, he will hand the keys to the kingdom to the church, and whatever the church unlocks will be unlocked. Whatever the church binds up, we bound up. And we go to the book of Revelation and the keys show up again and we realize something. Oh, the keys, that's the gospel message. That's what unlocks the kingdom for people. 
when the gospel is preached and people hear it and believe in Jesus and they're adopted into the kingdom as citizens, that's the entry point into the kingdom. That's the keys. And what Jesus is saying is that the work God does through the church will be fixed in eternity. Think about that, church. Like, that's what's happening right now through God's church. Whether it's solid rock, whether it's a church down the street, or a church in Afghanistan, or a church in Somalia, a church in China, New Zealand, South America, what God does through the church is fixed in eternity. That's huge, right? So what God's doing in my life right now and in your life right now is so much bigger, right, than my life. That's what Paul's saying here. What happens to the church will be fixed in eternity and the church will be unstoppable. It's so important for us to understand what we're learning here together. The church is so much more than a social institution or a, a social club or an organization of people who like to wear the same t-shirts and talk the same way and um, who claim to love the same God. Like the church is an establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Think about that. What God has done through the gospel has unlocked eternity for folks like us. None of us were fit to be citizens in God's kingdom, right? He takes brokenness and mess and ashes and turns them into beauty so that in God's kingdom, there is no mistake in who the king is. That's why folks like us, right, are allowed in. And at the moment you trust in Jesus as your savior, what happens is your eternity is fixed in God's kingdom and you're adopted in as a citizen. That is your primary citizenship. Before American citizenship, that is your primary citizenship. So in a world that seems to be getting more chaotic by the moment and more uncertain and just more confusing about who to vote for and who to support and what cause to be a part of, and right? First and foremost, we're members of, what's, of what kingdom? God's kingdom. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen in God's kingdom. God's citizens don't have mundane, ordinary Monday moments. Think about that. Your, your life, you're connected to eternity. Not because you're sitting here at solid rock, but because this church belongs to Christ. And through trusting in Jesus, he has brought his kingdom to earth and unlocked eternity for us. I want to take a moment to go back to Abraham if we can, okay? I want to think about what God said to Abraham first. What did he say to him? Abraham, pack up your stuff and go to the land that I'm going to show you. One of the greatest misunderstandings about the Old Testament is that somehow God was simply speaking about Jerusalem in, in the geographical region of Israel in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, okay? Okay? Like, that's a mistake to think that. And so for some people, as you read the Old Testament, as soon as the nation of Israel crosses over the river and steps into geographical Israel, that somehow that's all that God meant. Well, in your New Testament, there's a book in your New Testament called Hebrews, which is another name for the Jews. That's a commentary on the Old Testament. It explains a whole lot. 
And I want you to hear how the author of Hebrews explains Abraham's perspective in that moment. This is in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to these words as you think about God making this promise to Abraham. We read in Hebrews 11, verse 8, that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. We just read that together. Where are we going? I'll show you. By faith, verse 9, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose, design, whom, whose designer and builder is God. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is this, that once the nation of Israel got to Jerusalem, they weren't satisfied. They were longing for something better than Jerusalem. They were longing for a different city, a city whose designer and builder was God, not man. We keep reading, listen to this, in verse 13. After mentioning Abraham and others like him, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know what that means? There was not a place on the face of the earth for Abraham to call home. It wasn't the place he left. It wasn't Jerusalem and Israel. Why? Because he ultimately was an exile on the earth longing for something better. What that means for you and I? There isn't a place you can move to to find hope and peace. You can go to the beach. You can go to the mountains. You can move to the country. And guess what? Your chaos and your calamity will follow you there especially if you're married and you take your spouse. It's just going to follow you there, right? There's, there's no such thing as heaven on earth apart from God's kingdom. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, Abraham searched for it. He followed God diligently for years and, and years, and he never was satisfied with what he found here on earth. Why? Because that was not meant to be his home. He goes on. For people who speak thus or speak this way, they make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So it wasn't that Abraham was sad that he had to leave his home. He wasn't longing to go back home. Look at what the author of Hebrews says, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. A better country. That is a heavenly one. Listen, it doesn't matter who the president of this nation is. The hope for this world is not the United States of America. The hope of this world is not the monarch in England. It's not some Middle Eastern leader. The hope of this world is not all the nations coming together and finally getting along. It's a mirage. <laughs> it's not going to, right? We can't even get along inside this country. How in the world are we going to get along with the rest of the countries, right? Well, that's the point. Abraham was not looking for his hope and his citizenship as an Israelite. He was longing for a better country, a heavenly one, an eternal one. He was longing for the promise that would be made to David hundreds of years later when God said, I'm going to finally establish my throne forever over the nation of Israel. That's what he was longing for. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to call to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's what the book of Revelation is about. That's why the book of Revelation finds its like epic moment with the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Abraham was longing for. Now, let's do two things. Let's ask the question, okay, so this is all about Abraham and the Old Testament, the hope of Israel. What in the world does that have to do with me? Why is the church so significant in God's redemption story? I want to I invite you to turn to Ephesians 1 with me. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. It's a beautiful, historic, redemptive, theological overview of the power of Christ in our lives. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 begins... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? The purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So, What Paul's about to do is, here's what the mystery of God's will is. Here's the great mystery of the Bible. Here's the link that stitches together the hope of Israel, the kingdom of God. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. What a beautiful summary of the Bible. This description puts Jesus at the beginning as the author. When God was making his promise to Abraham, Jesus was part of that promise. When when, when God the Father was speaking to Abraham, saying, I'm going to bless all nations through your descendants, Jesus was already poised and ready to be born, right, of the Virgin Mary, to have the DNA of Abraham and David, yet bear the, the Spirit of God as his Son on earth to come and fulfill all the hope of Israel to be our king and to usher God's kingdom to the earth, which at this moment in time, God calls his church. We are in a unique place in redemptive history, church. We we right now are, are, are sitting between the two advents of Christ, between his first coming and his second coming. And so it's a really unique place to be because here's the thing, we struggle with who we are. Are we saints or sinners? Am I, I was predestined to be made righteous and holy in Christ, yet when I go home, I still struggle with anger, right? I'm still fighting the war of sin, and, and, and I come in, I sing these songs about how God has redeemed me and saved me, and I'm forgiven, I'm now made new in Christ, and yet what? I still struggle. So which is it? Am I a saint or am I a sinner? It's the now and the not yet. The church is the now and not yet kingdom of God. 
We are his kingdom here on earth. But guess, listen, it's going to get better than this. Don't compare what you're experiencing right now to eternity in heaven. This is, this is but a, a shallow echo of the realities that are coming. I want you to think about that on Monday morning when you're drinking your coffee and you're turning off your alarm clock and you're thinking about another mundane, ordinary life, that you are anything but ordinary. You are an eternal being. And when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you're adopted into his eternal kingdom and God fixes your place in eternity. It's fixed. It's concreted in. And what God will do through your life is more about eternity than what's happening in that moment. Your citizenship in his kingdom is bigger than your job. It's bigger than your career path. It's bigger than how comfortable or uncomfortable you may be. It's bigger than a medical diagnosis. It's bigger than your struggles in marriage. It's bigger than your struggles as a parent. It's bigger than your struggles with loneliness and despair or even all-out depression. God is saying, listen, I'm bigger than that, and your place is fixed in eternity. You're a citizen in my kingdom, first and foremost. What's interesting is Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, Luke sums up for us what Paul does from here. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the theme of the book of Acts. It's the theme of your Bible. And as Christians, it's the theme of your life. God has called you to be a citizen of his kingdom. He's called you a saint, a priest. I want to end with just a couple of questions to think about in reflection. How does this challenge you? How does it blow your mind to think that right now you are interacting with eternity. Think about that. That God is doing eternal work in your life. How does, that, how does that challenge you? How does that maybe cause you to think about your week differently? The Monday through Friday grind that feels so pointless and meaningless, chasing after another dollar or paycheck or just trying to stay afloat and get out of debt, and, right? How does that change your perspective? How does it challenge you as a Christian to know that what you're a part of is part of God's unstoppable church, his kingdom on earth? And let me ask you this, for those of you here today, maybe you haven't come to that place in your journey where you've trusted in Jesus as your savior and your king. Maybe today would be that day, right? It's a quick kick in the tires. You know God's been working in your heart. You know God's been speaking to you. He's been drawn to you. What if today you say, you know what, I'm going to take that step. I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all figured out yet, but I'm going to take a step of faith towards God by trusting in Jesus that what he's done for me on the cross is enough to give me forgiveness, right, and to adopt me into God's kingdom. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to do something courageous today. Um, well, in a minute, I'm going to have our prayer partners be at the back of the room um, they'll be off to this side of the auditorium in the back, and they'll have on lanyards that say prayer partner. And they would be honored to talk with you about becoming a Christian today, uh, to pray with you and answer any questions that you have. And so when we stand to sing, if that's you, I'm gonna encourage you to do something courageous, to step out of your seat, go grab a prayer partner, and you don't have to even have the right question to say, I just wanna know more about becoming a Christian. Can you tell me more about how to become a Christian? 
and, and they'll be glad to talk with you about that. Um, as our worship team comes forward and our prayer partners make their way over, I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer and then we'll, we'll respond. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you that what um, you are doing in our lives right now in this moment matters. That God, you aren't speaking us to, to us today to just encourage us for the moment that God, what you're doing through the church is an eternal work. God, thank you for the reminder through Paul's life and ministry, through the book of Acts, that what you're doing here on earth is you're building your kingdom. And God, we're so overwhelmed with thankfulness and humility, God, that you would call folks like us to become citizens in your kingdom. God, we are so unworthy. We aren't good enough. We aren't talented enough. We don't have enough to offer. God, we're just overwhelmed by your goodness that you would call people like us. God, you would take our brokenness, you would take our messes, you would take our ashes, God, and you would turn it into something beautiful. So God, now I pray that for each of us here today that we would consider eternity. And for those of us who know Jesus, that our hearts will be encouraged and challenged today to see that our life and our journey here on earth is not about becoming comfortable here, but it's about living for a better country, living for eternal purposes. And God, for any person here who doesn't know you personally, I pray today that today would be the day of salvation through trusting in Jesus. We pray all this in his name.